Let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. Work in us, Father, through your word and the prompting of the Spirit to lead us to come to you. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. There is so much imagery that we get about heaven and hell when we look at the media. From people having wings and playing harps on a cloud, to people sitting in a giant cauldron being poked by the devil with a three-pronged fork. How much of it is true? Now scripture tells us that man is appointed to die once and after that the judgment. But what happens after the judgment? Today, we are going to see two main points about what the Bible has to say, about what it is going to look like forever to those who are judged guilty and for those who are found not guilty before the throne of God. The first point, the eternal destination of those who reject God and are judged guilty for their sins, brings us to the topic of hell. Now, in the eternal context of this being the final state, it's more accurate to call it the lake of fire rather than just hell. However, we can continue to refer to it as hell simply because that's what we are used to. Now, when this topic of hell comes up, there will be many who feel uncomfortable because it's a sensitive topic. Some might even say, Hey, you shouldn't talk so much about hell. Uh. Jesus came to preach love and peace, whereas this message of hell is damnation and hellfire. Now, Jesus warns us in Matthew that there will come a day when he will separate all people into two groups, the sheep that follow him and the goat that will be cast into this lake of fire. This warning then is a message that is meant to be shared to others so that people understand the consequences of not coming to Jesus. There will be a judgment day and unless we respond rightly, there will be terrible consequences as people find themselves in this lake of fire. So especially for this Christmas season, see that you're sharing about the gospel to others should also include this warning from Jesus. And if we are ashamed of this inconvenient truth, then we will miss out on giving people the very warning that Jesus himself gives. So this season, even as we prepare our hearts to just share the good news with people, we should also prepare our hearts to share about this warning of this impending lake of fire. So what do we know actually about this great lake of fire that Jesus has warned us about? And we saw from our gospel reading, right, that Jesus described it as a terrible place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The book of Revelation paints it as a lake of fire and sulfur where there will be torture day and night. This eternal fire is the destiny of Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. And ultimately, all who sin against God and is not made right by Jesus. Now, there is a good argument to be made that 
in describing these things, Jesus was using metaphor and imagery from Jewish culture to describe hell. And maybe the reality of it might not be literally a lake of fire and sulfur. Sometimes Jesus also refers to this place as the outer darkness. Right? And we're thinking, if got fire, how come it's dark, right? But the fact that it's the outer darkness implies that it is a place outside of the city of God, that there's no grace from God there, and going to this place signifies you're cut off from God's protection, from God's people. So taking into account the different descriptions, um, we shouldn't hold too tightly to a literal idea of a place of burning pits, but we want to recognize the point of the description is to help us realize the point that hell is really going to be a terrible, terrible place, devoid of goodness, a place that you will want to avoid at all costs. So you see, this does not lessen the impact of hell because without a doubt, it's a place of eternal suffering that nobody would want to visit and experience. Nobody comes out from hell. And right now, regardless of whatever you have done, there is a way out of hell if you come to Jesus for your salvation. So if you are someone here who right now don't have any confidence in Jesus, maybe you're just here because it's Christmas season or your family made you come here, you have not put your trust in him, and as you hear this warning for this lake of fire, you feel very uncomfortable, then know you have a choice on where you will end up. You can choose to listen to the warnings of Jesus and avoid that eternal torment, coming to him for your salvation, placing your trust and your life in Jesus' hand. Now, there are some Christians who actually have a wrong idea of hell, and we'll be looking at two examples today. Firstly, we will look at those who believe in annihilationism. So these folk believe once you go into the lake of fire, you die. That's the end of it. The torture is not forever. And once you're dead, you cease to exist. And the implication is, then you're at peace. Lah. And you can already see, right, what impact will this have on your gospel sharing? If the consequences of rejecting Jesus is having one scary experience, then death, then people would stubbornly say, I'm happy to go through that rather than bend my knee before this Jesus who wants to boss over me and control how I live my life unhelpful. Now, the reason these people believe that those in the lake of fire are annihilated may sound plausible if you listen to them. They will argue, Jesus comes to give eternal life to those who follow him, and therefore only those in heaven will have eternal life, and those in hell cannot have eternal life. So if life in the lake of fire is not eternal, then it stands to reason, surely they are utterly destroyed there and their misery comes to an end. And unfortunately, this line of reasoning ends up being a source of comfort for those who are headed to the lake of fire. It has the consequence of reducing the sting of the warning that Jesus gives. So are they right? 
Short answer is no, they are wrong. While it is true, Jesus does come to give eternal life only to those who come to him, we want to look carefully, right? What does eternal life in the Bible? Now, if you look at John chapter 1, verse 4, we see the declaration, in him was life and the life was the light of man. So Jesus came bearing life and that life was the light of man. So it's understood, right? This ties into the promise of eternal life and Jesus comes to bring this to people. But notice, he is bringing life not to dead people, but to living people. So we know that this life that Jesus brings should not be confused with what we normally think of as life. The animation, movement, vitality of the body, right? Life as we tend to think of it is tied into a heartbeat, brainwave, capacity to do things. But life in the Bible encompasses something more than that. Life is something that the living, breathing people that Jesus came down to minister to can receive even though they're not dead yet. In John 14, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So we see here that this idea of Jesus being life is linked to the coming to the Father through Christ. So Jesus is not talking about the force that animates us, but about how we experience our existence by being connected to the source of life, who is God himself. So life in the Bible is about existing in a way that has meaning because you're connected to God and not just meandering around doing your own thing that has no significance towards God's greater plan. So if we see it in that way, there's no contradiction. So there's no real objection as to why people can remain in the lake of fire forever, be dead in the spiritual sense, and still continue to exist and suffer for all eternity, just as how Jesus has promised through the scripture. In the lake of fire, the fire is not quenched because that which it burns is not yet destroyed. Next, another wrong understanding is universalism. And this is even worse. I would say this is not even Christian, right? Universalists believe that since Jesus has come to die for all sins, then nobody goes into the lake of fire. Regardless of your relationship with Jesus, everyone is going to be safe in the end. So the lake of fire to the universalists is just a place where Satan and his demons will be punished. They will quote John 3.16, God so loved the world and sent his son, then they will point out, if God loved the whole world, he would have saved everyone lah. Then they'll point to Hebrews 2.9, which says that Jesus came to taste death for everyone's sake. Then they argue from 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus came as the propitiation not only of the sins of Christians, but for the whole world. Now, these are good points. But ultimately, what we want to do is help them see it in its context, rather than just reading individual verses plucked out of context. So if you hear these arguments, you can point out to them, yes, John 3.16 does say God loves the world, but if you continue reading, it says that God sends his son so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So clearly, it's not a universal application of salvation. 
The verse in Hebrew that states that Jesus came to taste death for everyone is followed up in verse 10 with the declaration that it is fitting that he does this so that he will bring many sons to glory. And we know from the Bible, the many sons refers to those who are saved, the church, and not every living human being. The words from 1 John that states that he, he is the propitiation for the sin of the whole world is followed by verse 3 that says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So it implies then that in keeping his commandments that we come to know him in order to benefit from his propitiation. So, Jesus coming to propitiate for the sin of the whole world does not automatically apply to everyone, only to those who come to know him. So, if you had had this wrong understanding, if you think it's okay, lah, as long as they're good people, God will deal with them kindly. Sorry to burst your bubble. If you do not know Christ, you go to hell. So as we take all these things together, we will have to say, salvation is only to those who have accepted Jesus. Judgment will fall on those who have not. So salvation is not automatic to all people. It's a wrong understanding of the gospel. And while it is true, the price that Jesus paid on that cross is sufficient to pay for every single sin ever committed, that salvation needs to be accepted by faith in Christ. So, understand the eternal fate of those who do not come to Jesus for salvation is to go to the lake of fire for all eternity. So don't fool yourself and tell yourself stuff like, he's a nice person, he does so much good things, he needs Christ or he will go to hell. So moving on from that then, we look to what happens on the other side of the end time, right? What is the eternal fate of those who are faithful to Jesus? Now some believe that we become angels sitting on clouds playing the harp, and this is of course totally wrong, right? What does scripture teach us about our eternal destination? So we know from scripture, we are promised eternal life, blessing from God in the form of an inheritance that's given to us. So what does that look like? Well, firstly, we want to see that God's larger plan in salvation is about redemption. Not just the redemption of us humans, but also the redemption of the whole of creation from the stain of sin and death. Adam failed in sin. He brought in corruption of sin and death into this universe. <coughs> And God's plan for the universe seemingly has gone wrong. However, God has always planned to allow for this to happen. So that through Jesus, he can fix the problem once and for all in such a manner that his complete plan will come to fruition through that gospel. And this is why Romans 8.29 tells us that all things happen in this way so that Jesus shall be the firstborn among many. That's why we are saved. So God therefore redeems all creation and he does it in such a manner that the end result 
is God dwelling with mankind. We are redeemed in such a way that we are now worthy of calling Jesus our brother and king. So this is God's ultimate purpose in the means through which he saves us. And this is actually solving the problem that you would have read in the Bible if you read the Old Testament carefully. How can a holy God dwell together with his people in the perfection of creation and peace? So we know we stay with God. That's good. But does that mean we stay in the heavenly place up in the sky? Actually, no. God's plan was always to, in a sense, bring down heaven to earth. And that is the point of this redemptive work that God does, which is called the new creation in Revelation. And so we see in Revelation 21, there's a new heaven and a new earth. And so God renews all creation, takes out all the sinners, puts them in hell, and then he repopulates this new creation with a redeemed mankind. And then God dwells with his people on earth. And we see in Revelation 21 a picture of the coming of the holy city of Jerusalem from the heavens. And we should see this as a metaphor. I don't think it's literally a city coming down like a giant UFO. But it is a picture of a spiritual reality using Old Testament imagery that heaven is now coming to be on earth. So this means for us, there will be a physical place to gather as God's people. And since we are raised up in our glorified bodies like Jesus, we too will exist in the flesh, in that redeemed earth, the new creation. So we will meet each other who are in Christ. right? So look left and right, you're going to see them for all eternity. So better be good friends now. Huh? So you will live then under the authority of Christ in this new world. Now, we don't know the details of how the governance, how the government would run, how Jesus will rule in a practical sense, but we do know that it is going to be perfect. And anyone who sees it will assume that, wow, this is God himself built one, come from heaven to earth. And that's the whole point of that imagery. So, if you've been to Bible Overview, what we see in the new creation is that there's going to be a gathering of God's people living under God's rule in God's place in a perfect manner in new creation. Right? And this is the same picture you see in Bible Overview repeated again and again, right? starting from the Garden at Eden, then the people who wandered the desert carrying the tabernacle, to the church under God, and finally, on that day when God makes everything right and perfect again, we have a satisfying end to the story. And I say satisfying end because if we continue to look at Revelation 21, we will see that in this new creation, there will be no more sickness and sorrow, no more death, every tear wiped away by God. Life is found in abundance, which implies that we can now truly live Enjoying right relationship with God. Enjoying his creation. No more sickness or aging. And unlike this current world that we live in, the redeemed world will be heaven on earth, literally. Because God now dwells with his people on this earth. And he will care for, and he will provide for their every needs. 
Now at this point, it may sound like you're just going to be loafing around with nothing to do. God's going to give you everything. But that's actually far from the truth. Because we see when God created Adam, humanity was created for work. And work is good. Adam was created to work the ground. So our very nature means we will then work in the new creation. So what happens is the new creation is actually a continuation of the theme of Adam's work, which become corrupted by the curse, the fall. And this time, however, a redeemed humanity living in perfect peace with God is going to be able to work the earth as we should have been able to. We will have meaningful dominion under King Jesus in the right way. So I'm speculating here, but I imagine that there will still be jobs. Each of us will be doing different things. But unlike the current world, there will no longer be trappings of economy and politics, which is linked into sinfulness. And so the work that we will do will be pure, untainted by human ego and greed. Now, scripture does not tell us how life would be in the new creation, but just take a moment to imagine, right? What our lives would look like if we don't have to work to earn a living, but rather, having been given an abundance of all things to enjoy, we then choose to work because that is what pleases God. And for those of you who, who sigh when the alarm rings in the morning, I have to go to work, what a blessing then this would be. And we will work in harmony with one another. No ego, no politics, no sinfulness, no unhealthy competition, no unethical things at work, no more backstabbing in the office, no more office politics, no more gossip. We will then care about the environment and the animal. And so we will be people who work with wisdom, not with greed and destruction. There will be no more starving children laboring in sweatshops or people working long hours for minimum wages because humanity would have changed. Our goal would be to serve and edify each other, no longer for financial gain. What a beautiful existence that would be. Well, as much as I wish I can tell you more, to paint a sweeter picture of this heaven on earth, this new creation that God has promised us, I can't because scripture is silent on the details. But we know the most important thing. We will be dwelling with God without sinfulness to bother us and we will find true joy in this new existence. Joy that will last for all eternity. And with that, we come to the end. Now, I do know that for some of you, despite hearing about the comforts of heaven, your mind might wander off, thinking of your loved ones who have rejected the gospel, who seem destined to the lake of fire, or loved ones who have passed away without Christ and therefore are headed there. So for those who are lost, I am sorry, there is nothing you can do for them. But remember that for those who still have a chance to turn to Christ, don't give up on them. Preach the gospel to them. Pray for them. Because the lake of fire is not a place we would want anyone to go, even our worst enemies. 
So, especially during this Christmas season, don't let your concerns, your fear, your worry that people won't like you stop you then from preaching the gospel faithfully. Not just the good news of salvation, not just the happy things God will bless you, but also the warning. If you do not come to Christ, you are headed to the lake of fire. At the end of the day, each person will have to decide for themselves, but let them make the decision after you have given them the warning. So let what you have learned today, the horror of the eternal suffering, the sweetness of eternal life, strengthen and encourage you then to put in effort into bringing the gospel into people's life. Plan for it. Rehearse it. Look for opportunities. Do all that you can to help people to hear this message, to give them this opportunity to come for salvation. And of course, at the end of the day, the decision they make is between God and them. Each must choose for themselves. And that means you need to look at yourself also. What decision have you made? What are you holding on to? And see that you yourself decide widely, wisely. See that the joy of heaven should be a motivation for you, for you to hold firm to your faith. Even if you're persecuted, even if the world offers you so many good things, don't be a fool. See that Christ is worth it and let that hope you have for this new creation give you comfort. Especially when life isn't going the way you want it to. Because every tear will be wiped away. So whatever storms is blowing in your life, hang on. God has promised comfort. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. And we pray, Lord, that you will help us to realize the depths of danger that people are in, the terribleness of hell, and at the same time, encourage us, Father, of how wonderful your promises are to us, that we will rejoice in it, and that we will want people to come to that salvation. So work in us, Father. Let us not be people who don't care for those who are perishing, and please give us opportunities, Lord. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, we ask this. Amen.